When we get creative with what we assign students, we open up a whole new set of possibilities for student engagement and learning. On today's episode, Dr. Cameron Hunt McNabb helps us discover how to craft creative assignments that facilitate learning well. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm excited today to have on the show Dr. Cameron Hunt McNabb. She joined Southeastern University in 2012 after several years of teaching English at the University of South Florida and the University of Tampa. Her interests include medieval and early modern drama, medieval philosophy, and creative writing. She's taught such courses as the history of the English language, early Shakespeare, and a variety of composition and literature courses. And I want to welcome to the show Dr. Cameron Hunt McNabb. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm so pleased you took up the invitation. You were actually recommended to me by Josh Eiler, who was back on the show earlier, and he said that you're a genius, his exact words. (laughs) So I'm thrilled to have you here. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, Josh has been uh, nothing short of just a constant source of inspiration for me and support, and uh, so I'm always very, very grateful for his friendship. Um, and his scholarship and everything in between. So, One of the things you both have studied is the study of disability in the Middle Ages. How did you get an interest in that, and, and how did the two of you connect on that piece? Josh and I crossed paths at the major medievalist conference each year in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I got into disability studies because he was in disability studies and started attending some of their roundtables and some of their meetings. And it's a really, it's a developing field right now in literature. And I think it's tremendously important and has a lot to offer the field. Another way that I increase my interest in it, I suppose, is uh, Josh introduced me to one of the projects that the Society for the Study of Disability in the Middle Ages was working on, which was a glossary for disability terms in Middle English and Old English. And he asked if I wanted to contribute to that glossary. And I actually passed that opportunity on to some of my students when I was teaching history of the English language. So instead of me just doing the research and sending it in, I actually made it the major project of my history of the English language course. And my students, my undergraduate students, actually did all of the research and writing and contributed the entry into the glossary. I loved visiting your website, and I will link, by the way, to all of the resources that Cameron talks about and any of the ones I mention. I'll link to in the show notes. This is the 24th episode, so they'll be at teachinginhighered.com slash 24. And I want to start out with your teaching philosophy. I just thought you articulated it so well. And you started with a quote that you have told me is mostly known as unattributed. To And this is really wrapped around your teaching philosophy to make the familiar strange and the strange familiar. What part of that has really resonated with you? For my own work, which is in uh, medieval literature and early modern literature, I think that students tend to approach those topics 
as strange, <laughs> right? They're, they're, they don't have much to connect with in that field. And so I think one of my primary goals um, in teaching those course topics is to make the strange familiar um, and to give students some common ground and some ways to connect with those subjects. Um, however, I also kind of use the opposite um, when approaching uh, subjects that students might identify at least initially as familiar, such as in composition or gen ed classes. Students might, you know, think of a text message or an internet ad as something that's familiar. They encounter it all the time. But by looking at it through a particular rhetorical lens or by studying Plato and Aristotle and different philosophies, then I make that object or that artifact um, strange to them. I give them, them something that they now are looking at it in a different way. So I find that I actually use both sides of that quote. Um, but just depending on the subject matter and, and where my students are when they first encounter it. It really resonated with me a lot. And it also links to an article that you wrote in Salon Magazine, The Truth About Internet Slang. It goes way back. We think of these text message, TTYL, as in talk to you later. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm only <laughs> skimming the surface there, but that actually is something that has happened for a lot longer than we realize. Yes, yes. So text speak is, a, is another good example of um, something that most people, not just our students, would identify as familiar. Um, but, but the reality is, right, I can sort of make it strange for them um, by showing them that these things actually occur in medieval manuscripts as well, um, that, that these uh, pressures on the language to accommodate uh, shorter space or shorter time or precious resources is nothing new. Um, the, the, the text message is nothing new, in fact. Um, but the, uh, the, it occurs, you know, in these medieval manuscripts as well. So I really enjoyed also publishing for a more popular venue instead of just a, a peer-reviewed journal. I, I enjoy the fact that, you know, at least more people than, um, would read it than in a peer-reviewed journal. So Absolutely, and, and a whole bunch of reasons why that would be, and, and well beyond academia, too. It made it much more accessible, and it was also written very accessibly, too. So we, we're going to talk about some examples of assignments that you have done, but I want to rest assured anyone who's listening, if your background is not the same as Cameron's, and that's actually most of our listeners, if Josh, if you're out there, is probably, sorry, the one medieval <laughs> literature person who's possibly listening, although what do I know? I don't know everybody who listens, but but. I want to ask everyone to hang on. We're going to get some specific examples from Cameron, but then we're going to come right back out to the wide perspective of three very specific approaches that she uses that we all can leverage as we create really innovative assignments that engage our students and help them have deeper learning. So let's talk a little bit about why why should we care? I, I think sometimes creativity is just such a I think sometimes it's easy to toss it aside as, you know, today's students, they just need to learn how to focus and they need to learn how to have discipline for things that they can't instantly grasp. And we, we can't be edutainers. And, and so why, why should we care about this? Why is it important for our students that we tap into the creativity that's inside of all of us? I do often think about, particularly when designing assignments, that these assignments are meeting a specific goal um, meeting some kind of measurable outcome and not just, uh, as you mentioned, sort of, you know, edutainment, right? That um, we want to entertain the students to get them engaged, um, but more so to, to educate them to get them engaged. So I'm, I try to be very sensitive to that when I'm designing them. One of the, the things, and I know this is 
uh, one of your larger topics, but when I use backward design, uh, which is a, a concept that uh, comes out of the book Understanding by Design, and it actually just asks you to flip the way that you design assignments. And so you begin by identifying goals. Instead of just relying on uh, designing the assignments first, you identify the goals first. So if the goal is uh, education, but education in a particular area, you want them to acquire a certain knowledge or demonstrate a certain understanding, then you identify that first. And then you kind of work backwards from that principle and you identify uh, what kind of evidence would um, exhibit uh, whatever goals you've already set. And then once you've determined what kind of evidence would be appropriate, then you actually have multiple options for designing assignments that would support that kind of evidence or provide that evidence. I think, unfortunately, when people hear about creative assignments, sometimes what they hear about are assignments that they perceive to be easy. But actually what we're (laughs) talking about today are assignments that are actually far harder than just memorization. They're far harder than just repeat back to me what I told you or what you read in a book somewhere. This is requiring a lot deeper level of critical thinking for them to be able to accomplish these tasks. And I love that you started with Wiggins. And again, anyone listening will be linking to these resources in the show notes, because it's the perfect. In fact, Stephen Covey, a great leadership author, always talked about begin with the end in mind. And we think about those concrete and measurable things. And then we think about, as you said, what evidence will there be? And then and then, so talk a little bit about the, the process then that you go through. And maybe you could even use an example of one of your creative assignments that you've used. You started with that end in mind and then how you came about with uh, the creative assignment. I know they'd love to hear about it. Sure. Well, one that um, I found particularly effective was in my history of English language class, um, I didn't want to do a, a standard sort of final exam, you know, multiple choice. Um, a test to uh, identify whether students had learned some of the major themes of the class. The uh, developments in language over time, major trends in the change of English, etc. So instead I, I did backward design and I identified the goals that I wanted them to meet. In particular, I wanted them to have an awareness of the patterns of change in English over roughly you know, 1,500 years. I wanted them to be aware about how fast or slow that change could take place and then the sources of those changes over time. Uh, Where were these influences coming in? So I identified those goals and then I uh, wanted to determine what kind of evidence would meet those goals. So I knew that students would need to produce something, uh, whether it was a final exam or an essay or something, that would uh, demonstrate that. So one of the uh, assignments that I designed Um, to identify that evidence and and meet that goal was what I called future English. So at the end of the semester, I had students, I assigned them to write a paragraph or excerpt in future English, what they thought English would be a hundred years from now. And this assignment, it's creative. You know, students need to engage in critical thinking and creative thinking, but students had to reflect. It forced them to reflect on 
everything we'd covered prior in the semester. How quickly or slowly would change happen in that hundred years? Where would be some likely sources of change? And then what changes in what direction based on trends that they'd already seen uh, over the course of the semester? Instead of just providing a final exam for them with multiple choice, you know, questions with would this be something that would be seen in future English or not? I left the assignment more open to them, and then they brought in their projects, their assignments. And then we had a great discussion about, okay, why did you choose this, or why did you go this direction with your assignment? And instead of uh, kind of closing down possibilities, which is what I think that final exam would have done, just given them a small selection of possibilities, instead the assignment opened up a lot of possibilities for them, and uh, every student came in with something different, a different paragraph on the page. And then the discussion even opened up possibility uh, even more. So I felt like that assignment and students in, in the class and in their evaluation agreed really was much more effective because it was creative and because it was, you know, a backward design assignment instead of the, the starting with the final exam and then moving forward. One of the other elements that you say is really critical in your teaching is called authentic pedagogy or pedagogy. For anyone listening, this is one of those tomato, tomato words, if you're not familiar with it. And of course, if we're going to be really accurate, the term we would use for teaching young adults would be andragogy, which is the teaching of adults. But we, we tend to, in higher ed, still use pedagogy or pedagogy. So authentic pedagogy, what is that? What, what does that represent for you in your teaching? And what's an example of how you've brought it into your work? Well, for authentic pedagogy, it tends to, uh, the philosophy tends to place an emphasis on authentic learning or, or learning that is construction of personal knowledge or utilitarian knowledge, um, aesthetic knowledge, and it also places a high value on knowledge that extends beyond the classroom. There's a couple of ways that I include authentic pedagogy in my work, particularly when working with an undergraduate gen ed classroom. I teach a lot of composition. And I, so I like to uh, use real world text with students, ads, or uh, just this past week, we looked at gubernatorial debate that were going on, Facebook posts, uh, any, anything like that, that's writing, reading, text that they would encounter in the real world. And then we examine those texts using the, the, the course tools. And I also assign real-world writing to those students. Even this semester, I have a student who's interested in working in PR and wants to learn more about how to craft kind of PR campaigns. So for her project, she asked if she could actually construct a PR campaign for a local company. And I said, absolutely, right? That's, that's exactly what you should be doing. So instead of producing assignments that get handed into a professor, a kind of audience of one, and then graded and then handed back and then, you know, really discarded at the end of the semester, at the end of the year, um, students have uh, texts and have assignments and work that have value beyond the classroom. Um, that they can take out into the into the real world. And I, also for my assignments, too, um, when I think of the real world, I don't necessarily equate that as just vocational, you know, just giving them something that they can use in their work. But the real world is, is seeing ads on television. It's um, going out to vote or it's even checking text messages or, um, you know, going through the Internet. So um, I try to give real world examples that aren't just uh, – vocational for their careers, but but for every aspect of their life. 
B.F. Skinner said in 1964, education is what survives when what has been learned has been forgotten. And when we have that deeper learning, when we're thinking about what value is this going to be to me after I get out of school, then we can stop with the more transactional forms of learning where I I got it for the final exam or for that final paper, and then I'm just going to move on to the next class and forget all that that I learned. And so it, it helps, I think, them see the value of it. Not, I mean, not realistically, there are still going to be students who aren't necessarily going to be able to see that. But if you've built up that kind of trust and credibility with them, sometimes they'll go along with you with that trust that this is actually going to be important. If they see that you care and they see the work that you've put into having backward design and articulating those goals for them, and they can see that authentic pedagogy that is relying on their prior knowledge, bringing that into the classroom, and then making it fast forward to what the value might be beyond school. Tell me a little bit about how you use active learning in your creative assignments and in your teaching. Yes, and active learning, I I always somehow picture that term in kind of scare quotes, you know, because I I (laughs) have a lot of discussion with my colleagues about whether learning can ever be passive, you know. (laughs) Isn't all learning in some way active? Um, So maybe a term more like, you know, kinesthetic learning or those there's a lot of terms out there, but um, hands-on is a sort of, you know, easy way to say um, that I really like to do a lot of hands-on learning for, for students as well. Um, so even just this semester, uh, a good example of that is I'm teaching uh, Shakespeare, Intro to Shakespeare, and um, the usual approach to an Intro to Shakespeare class is a heavy emphasis on the text and reading the text and, you know, critically analyzing the text, and we do all of that. In our class, but I also tend to have a heavy emphasis on the performance and performative elements of the text. And so this semester, I experimented a little and I actually took one week of class, so just two class periods, and I hired some actors to come in and I reserved a, a large auditorium space on our campus. And I had students come to those two class sessions prepared with a script, an annotated script of a scene from Macbeth. And then I had the actors sort of start, uh, you know, working the scene, workshopping the scene. And I had students, 24 students, actually sort of all collaboratively co-direct those actors. And so students were the ones saying, no, you know, let's move it here. Let's have you enter here. Let's direct this line here. And I was a little concerned about whether 24 people could collaboratively <laughs> co-direct two actors. I thought, maybe this will turn into hurting cats. Um, but in fact, it worked really, really well. And students were not just uh, passively observing the performance process, but were actually creating the performance process. And it, it gave students a very different level of engagement uh, than I think they would have had um, uh, otherwise. I don't remember where I first saw this. It was a recent blog, but I know it ended up eventually getting getting reproduced or or reposted on the New York Times, I believe in the editorial section. And initially the author was anonymous and it was an article about a professor going and taking on the role of a student. Actually may not have even been in higher ed, it might have been high school, 
where the author, who we later find out, by the way, is a woman. So she she goes and actually takes the classes that the students take and, and goes through what their days are like. And there were a number of discoveries that she made, one of which really stands out to me. And that was she was just so surprised about how physically exhausting it is to sit all day. And those, yeah. of, those of us that teach, of course, we're standing up, we're walking around, but for our students, what that's like for them can, and she just was completely flabbergasted. And I don't know if you read this too, but it eventually turned out it was actually Wiggins' daughter. Oh, that's where I first saw it. Wiggins, who wrote Backward Design, for anyone listening, that's the first book that Cameron talked about, Backward Design, Learning, uh, sorry, you said the title of it earlier, Learning. Understanding by Design. Thank you. Understanding by Design by Wiggins. So he's he's a wonderful educator, has lots of uh, books that he's published and is just an expert in his field. It was initially in his blog and he wasn't trying to trick his readers or anything like that by not saying that it was his daughter, but he just didn't want to lose the credibility of it. And of course, people didn't really criticize him for that. They really celebrated both that they understood why he had kept her name from them at first, but then was were very proud of the observations she had made once they discovered it was her. So that's a good read. I'll link to that in the show notes. I think there's a lot of important things for us as educators to keep in mind of what that's like to just sit. And I would say <laughs> passively learn. Well, actually, I, I think that your colleagues are correct that passive learning doesn't exist. Unfortunately, I think that we think students are learning when what they're doing is passively doing something, but it's not learning. <laughs> <laughs> yes, passivity exists, but maybe not passive learning. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I think that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. And then it goes back to what is our role as educators? Are we supposed to be where like my husband jokes and tells my two and a half year old mommy's a professor she professes things and he's completely tongue-in-cheek because is our job to profess or is our job to facilitate learning and there's lots of different ways we can do that I know we've only skimmed the surface on your creative assignments and we have time to wrap back around to that would you share a couple more with us and how maybe how they tied into any of these three things that we've looked at the backward design the authentic pedagogy or the active learning I would love to hear about a couple more Sure. Well, one of the uh, approaches that I also really value in the classroom is an encouragement of undergraduate research. And in my field, that tends to also fall under authentic pedagogy because as English majors, if they are going to move on in their career, um, for most of them, that means graduate school. And so that means research. Um, I know that's not true in all fields, but you know, for mine, uh, undergraduate research as I mentioned with the uh, assignment, it's my history of the English language students. That kind of research is very authentic. It's what they'll be doing um, in their future. So uh, actually just this summer, I had another opportunity to uh, engage in some undergraduate research with, a, with an undergraduate. Um, I was working on and am still working on an article on John Milton uh, in Paradise Lost. And so I had the opportunity to go to the Morgan Library in New York, um, which holds uh, one of the manuscripts, one of Milton's manuscripts of one of the books of Paradise Lost. And so I decided I had a research assistant with me, an undergraduate research assistant at the time, and I thought this would be such a great opportunity for the student as well. Um, I didn't even get to see, you know, manuscripts uh, that were that valuable well into grad school. So I uh, asked if I could bring my research student, uh, research assistant along and uh, have him gain some uh, firsthand exposure uh, to 
actual archival, uh, you know, manuscript research. And uh, so, so he did. He was able to come along and uh, visit the library and, and look at the resources. And um, so right now we're in the process of uh, kind of finalizing uh, our findings from the manuscript and we're co-drafting that article together. And so I do think that undergraduate research is, is very authentic and it's a great way for professors to um, really encourage research among their students, but encourage it, in again, in a way that um, will have an afterlife uh, outside of the classroom. Um, so if, you know, if this article gets picked up somewhere, um, then that student has uh, contributed to a very real project. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's what I'm hoping for. Um, another uh, assignment, creative assignment, that uh, I also just personally really enjoyed, but so did students, was in my history of the English language class, I had an emphasis on material culture, which is, you know, looking at the actual materials of text and the, the culture surrounding them. So in this class, I wanted students to hands-on engage, kinesthetically engage, with the uh, materials that medieval scribes or early modern printers would have been using. So uh, we actually bought uh, vellum and quills and ink for students, and they produced manuscripts with those. I uh, had them produce quartos where you're, uh, folding paper in specific ways and sewing it together is another uh, technique for medieval manuscripts. I also uh, wanted them to know what it would have been like, you know, for someone like Gutenberg to um, uh, set and print text on a printing press. And at the time that I designed these assignments, well before the semester, I assumed that I could just go out and purchase a small printing press on the Internet and I was uh, naive in that assumption. So I ended up actually building a printing press in my living room. It's very small, <laughs> um, but I went ahead and built one and uh, had students had to, you know, get letters and ink. And, um, but I had students produce uh, printed pages on an old-fashioned printing press. And uh, most students commented that that was their most valuable piece of paper <laughs> in their entire college career was this one piece of paper that had taken them so long to do on this printing press. Um, and I also had them do, uh, they had to type a page on a, on a typewriter, which was brand new for most of them. Um, and then they also produced a kind of digital project online. Uh, but So th those kinds of assignments, uh, they're very active, again. Um, but students really, really resonated with, uh, instead of just reading about how manuscripts were made, they actually experienced it. And for many of them, they, they took away a, a deeper sense of learning for that. It, even in things like it's easier to make certain quill strokes, right, for certain letters. And so even letter formation was resonating with them because they could see, oh, wow, it's really difficult to do this stroke with a quill, but it's much easier to do this kind of stroke. Um, so I, I feel like that assignment or those assignments were really effective and beneficial, but also creative um, for the students. Did you already have a typewriter that you owned, or was that something that you had to go through the adventure of purchasing? I did have a typewriter uh, already, but I didn't have the ribbon and the ink. So mm -hmm. um, luckily, my university had some typewriters in the back <laughs> that I guess were pulled out for very rare occasions. So um, they were gracious enough to let my students type on them. And, uh, and even just listening to student feedback, 
from that experience was really great. You know, many of them were, were like, where's the delete key? <laughs> there is no delete key. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and many of them were really distressed because their manuscripts were very um, decorative. And their, even their printed pages, um, they, they had managed to kind of decorate them. And then the sort of sparse aesthetics of the typewritten page, you know, they, there was almost this little sense of disappointment, like, oh, no, you know, it was definitely easier to produce, but, but gone is that aesthetic beauty um, that comes with sort of a handcrafted uh, text. So, so anyway, it was a really, really fascinating assignment uh, or, or series of assignments. This coming week in my introduction to business classes, my favorite week of the semester as far as the content goes, we're going to be talking about information technology. And I have an old, it's not that old, <laughs> speaking of things that are not that old, I think it's a 2010 or something clip from Louis C.K. And it's called Everything's Amazing and Nobody's Happy. And he goes through and through his great storytelling abilities, talks about that you know, we've got these smartphones and versus when we used to use the rotary phones and how you'd hate the guy that had the zero in his phone number. And he uses the analogy of getting on the plane. And there's a guy who goes there and they have Wi-Fi on the plane. He says, it's the newest thing any of us know exists. And what does the guy do? The second that it takes a second, he just gets so mad and goes, ah, and then of course he gets beeped out because Louis C.K. has a colorful language. So it's like, you you know what he says, but you get the beep. And then he says, wait a second, it's going to space. And every time my phone is slow, I always have that quote in my hand, like, give it a second, it's going to space. And it's this great <laughs> contrast. Some of the students know about the credit card machines that would just do the, what is that called? The paper that that you would rub the carbon yes carbon copies yeah so right? some of them yeah. have seen those some of them have seen rotary phones but we're getting I've been teaching now for 10 years so it's going to be less and less that they will have ever seen or heard those things and I was thinking it would be fun to be able to somehow acquire those things and have them in a box somewhere to just show them you know these this is what when he says rotary phone this is what he means and then when we think about sometimes in my class when we talk about information technology we're talking about cloud services we're talking about security on the internet we're talking about smartphones and now wearables are becoming such an interesting thing in the business world so it's really a fun thing but i think when we can do what you're describing we can make it kinesthetic, they can touch it, they can experience, they can try to produce something and see the difference between what it's like to produce it now. So that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful, wonderful way you've done. Was there anything you have left out that you want to share before we talk about recommendations? Because we've got a, a couple minutes if there's something else you want to share. I assigned my first year composition students a reading by Arthur Holmes. He's a philosophy professor. But he talks about the role of education and he says that education is not to make us homo favors, which is you know one who does or makes something. Um, so thinking about education not as just vocational, um, but he says you know instead we're homo sapiens, we're we're people who have wisdom and we're people who think. And uh, so I think that connects back to some of what we're talking about with these assignments, and that um, education is is to equip us to think. Um, and real-world thinking or authentic thinking, you know, is, is really what we're striving after for, for our students and, and for ourselves as well. This is the part of the show where, speaking of our recommendations, I joked with you, Cameron, I stole mine from Cameron. <laughs> she was so gracious <laughs> to send me an email and say, hey, did you know that the McSweeney's.net 
has an article about something. We did the podcast episode number three way back when we did uh, what the Princess Bride has to teach us about teaching. And so Cameron must have seen that show and said, oh, did you know this exists? So this is lines from the Princess Bride that double as comments on freshman composition papers. And this is by Jennifer, I believe it's Simonson. And this one we used in the show, it's just one of the classics. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And then the next quote, at a time like this, that's all you can think to say. I won't, I won't read them all, but I would not say such things if I were you. I do not suppose you could speed things up. Skip to the end. This is the sound of ultimate suffering. And last but not least, one of the great lines from the movie, The Princess Bride, inconceivable. So I will link to that in the show notes. And thank you, Cameron, for passing that on to me and allowing <laughs> me to steal it for the recommendations. What recommendations do you have for the listeners? Well, I was just recently reading through uh, actually some interviews with Tina Fey, and uh, I had read her autobiography, Bossy Pants, a while back. Um, one of the things that resonated with me uh, from her is actually she talks about one of the cardinal rules of improv, which is to always say yes. You know, whenever you're on stage uh, and you have your partner there and you're about to, you know, engage in a scene, that the, the, the rule is you just say yes, you know. And sometimes I feel like the classroom can be a little like improv. And <laughs> I actually come to class sometimes overprepared, very, very prepared. And yet still when you get in there and you've got discussion going or you've got students responding to something, there's that kind of element of improvisation. And so... I guess my recommendation and something that I try to do in my own classroom is to say yes, um, to say yes to student questions, to say yes to kind of changing a direction if the students are more interested in something else um, that, that the discussion brought up. So uh, just trying to say yes and, and Tina say comments that it's only by saying yes that we move forward in that discussion and sort of saying no kind of closes that down. So, so say yes. <laughs> oh, I love that. I have read that book. It was some time ago that I read it and I wasn't connecting it to teaching. And what a wonderful way to draw from that great book and, and have us think about our teaching in a different way. Thank you so much for visiting the show and for accepting the invitation and sharing all about these creative assignments and how we can use backward design and authentic pedagogy in our teaching and how we can also connect it back with active learning. Thank you so much for being on Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks to all of you for listening to episode 24 of Teaching in Higher Ed. I hope you'll visit the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 24 to take advantage of all the great resources that Cameron shared with us today. If you have yet to subscribe to the Teaching in Higher Ed weekly update, you could be getting these show notes right in your inbox without having to visit the show notes page. That's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And also, if you have a chance, would love to get a review or a rating on whatever it is you use to listen to the show, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher Radio. It helps others discover the show and just begin to build the community even more. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll look forward to seeing you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.